Welcome to Unredacted. I'm Philippe Reines, and along with my co-hosts Emily Brandwin and Molly Jong-Fast, sat down and interviewed my former boss, Hillary Clinton. Hillary was incredibly generous with her time. We spent a couple of hours with her at her home in Washington, D.C., where we talked to her about events of the day, events of yesterday, events of tomorrow. We talked to her about 2016, about 2020, about 2000. We talked about Rudy. We talked about Trump. We talked about Nixon. We talked about the Alabama ruling. We talked about Roe v. Wade. We talked about Ben Carson. We talked about Bill Barr. There's really nothing we didn't talk about, Uh, so much so that we've got a great about 90 minutes of tape that we want to share with you. So we're going to break it up into two parts rather than edit any of it out because it really was, we think, an interesting conversation. I'm always interested in hearing people's impressions after they've met with Hillary in a small setting. Hopefully you'll enjoy some of that part too. Do I still have to redact it even though you guys are on the record? It's called TSSCI. I think I'm a little nicer in real life than I am. Not hard. Feminist like in mileage me accounts. Is so yeah. Welcome everyone to Unredacted from the DSR Network. Today we have a very special guest who needs no introduction, but I will do so anyway. She, um, not in particular order, she uh, was a lawyer. She worked for the Children's Defense Fund. She is an author. She was First Lady of Arkansas, First Lady of the United States. She was the first First Lady to ever be Senator. She was the first woman to ever be Senator of New York. She was the 67th Secretary of State of the United States. She was the 2016 Democratic nominee for president, the first woman uh, nominee of a major party. She is a Grammy winner. And uh, for 17 years, I've been honored to call her my boss. Uh, Thank you for joining, in case that didn't give it away, Hillary Rodham Clinton. (laughs) Uh, Madam Secretary, thank you for having us in your home. It's very generous of you. Um, I'm going to, since I know you, you know me, and since I've been your spokesman and now podcast host, it would be very confusing for me to sit here because I would ask a question and then I would interrupt my own question. (laughs) Which I do anyway. anyway. I'm going to leave you in the good hands of Emily and Molly, who are huge fans and very excited. But before I do that, um, there's going to give you one or five true or false questions that came from the internet. Uh, this is from Philip from Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and these are just straight, true or false questions. Um, Philip asks, when Philippe <laughs> interviewed with you in 2002, he sweated profusely throughout the interview. True. Okay. You fired Philippe on July 27, <laughs> 2005. For the first time, yes. <laughs> Philippe showed up to work anyway on July 28, 2005. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Firing Philippe was one of the top 500 worst decisions you've made. False. Okay. And if I ask one more true or false, I would probably be thrown out of the house. True. <laughs> All right. With that, I'm going to excuse myself. I'm going to be, if you need me, I'll be back in the pool. I will be, <laughs> I won't go all the way in. I'll just dangle my feet. 
<laughs> and uh, Alia will be back. Everyone have fun. Thanks. It sounded like Philippe was welling up a little bit. I, I've been very proud to work for Hillary Clinton for so long. And uh, one thing that always, for a lot of reasons, I wish she had won and been president. But one is I've seen as senator and in New York and as secretary of state, her go from someone that people maybe didn't vote for, didn't like, maybe flat out hated because they had this caricature of her. But then when they saw her work and saw how how hard she worked for them, even though they weren't supporters, they changed their mind. And I really wish, given what's going on these days, that we all could see how hard she would work for the 50% of the country that falls in the basket of something that that don't like her, but um, she would have served very well. So, Thanks for leaving. You're welcome, ma'am. And you can stay. I mean, you just te- no, can't no, talk. No, no, no. Is the, temp- the temptation is too great? Yeah. He, yeah. he will talk the entire time. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> we have enough trouble keeping him from talking as it is. <laughs> you, you two are very brave uh, very, no, being part of this it trio. Was, it's, it's, the, it's the most courageous thing I've done since the CIA or before the CIA, <laughs> maybe. It's like being in one of those war zones you can't talk it, about. It really is. If they gave me a choice, I'm like, Philippe, or a war zone, I don't know. Flip a coin. Um. So we were talking about CPAC before. Mm-hmm. So and my experience with like the hate of the con- crazy conservative, what I don't know if I think calling them conservatives is kind of wrong. I think it's a disservice to true conservatives because right. they are not really in line with what I always thought of as conservative. They're like sort of gateway pundit-y, these sort of scary, and the, a lot of conspiracy stuff. And so my question for you is, like, I know how I deal with it, but I don't have the same. Like, you've had m- much more for longer. Like, how do you deal with this kind of stuff? You know, uh, Molly, it's really um, something that I've had to deal with for so many years. And I started out in disbelief yeah. that people would say the things they said lie the way they lied, make all those false accusations against me. And then I realized that either they didn't know uh, the facts or they didn't care about the facts mm-hmm. and that they had agendas that had little to do with me, that I was a target for their uh, attacks, their craziness, uh, because in their view, I was part of an opposition to whatever it is they were pursuing and pushing. And I also learned early on to take uh, criticism seriously, but not personally. And by that, I mean, if someone criticizes you, uh, you do want to make sure that there's not something embedded in that criticism that you can learn from that actually is true. So I do listen to what uh, people say when they're uh, critical, but I don't take it personally because that's part of the uh, effort that the folks acting in bad faith right. are really engaged in. They want to drive you down. They want to keep you down. They want to knock you off the field or, in your case, off uh, Twitter or wherever <laughs> you might be. Uh, so you can learn from your critics, uh, but you have to recognize that not all, all of them are acting in good faith and then don't ever take it personally. Do you think that there's like do you, what do you think about like this Biden thing, the Biden story like they were, I almost felt like it, they were coming after him exactly the way they had come after you with the same what does that feel like and do you 
Well, they did um, go after uh, uh, Vice President Biden in the same way. And unfortunately, they uh, cooked up their conspiratorial accusations against him and then got so-called mainstream media to print them or broadcast them. But I think it was important that there wasn't a, a reaction against it almost immediately online you know in in print and broadcast media where people were saying wait a minute we've been down this road <laughs> before uh, as they had in 2016 and you know previously in swift boating and other stuff that they have successfully uh, pulled off against uh, democratic uh, politicians so I was heartened by it yeah. I thought okay you know people have learned you know, don't give in to this. And and I hope more reporters are learning, don't get sucked into it. Right. One of the reasons, there are many reasons why I was so disappointed that you didn't win. Um, having worked in government service, it was a challenge being a woman. It was a challenge being a woman at the CIA because it's such this male-dominated place, as you know. And it's it was hard, and what I was looking forward to under you was I wanted to see more women, more diversity, get excited about working for the government and to stay in the government and so they could retain that talent because there's such a hemorrhage of really talented people, well, especially now. And I think of all this talent out there and what would you say, because people ask me all the time, why should I work for the government now? I have friends who work at the agency and I, they say, I, I want to get out and I, you know, I'm like, you have to stay in, you have to. What do you tell people? Well, Emily, first, thanks for working for the government and for Thank your you. work in the CIA and for continuing to uh, encourage people you know uh, to stay in government service because in many ways they are more needed than any time in recent history uh, because of the threats uh, to undermine, damage, even destroy large parts of our government by the current uh, administration. Yeah, look, I, I think government service is not only noble, I think it is essential, I think it is critical, I think that we've got to do more and frankly take a kind of 21st century look at how we attract young people because mm-hmm. as you know well from your service, uh, the federal workforce is graying, uh, people are going to be retiring, leaving a lot of positions vacant. Uh, because there isn't interest in pursuing uh, jobs that are critical, critical to everything from uh, the food we eat to the air we breathe to our national security and uh, beyond. So I would second your encouragement, and I have. I've talked to a lot of uh, government employees. Some have not been able to keep going because Mm -hmm. they've turned out to be targets within their agencies. I know that particularly in the State Department uh, where a lot of talent has been lost. But if it's at all possible to sustain your service, hopefully until we get to 2021 and a new administration, please do. Because the reason you entered it for the challenge and the interest of the work and the service of your country remain as critical as ever. It's the first time I can remember, and I don't know if it's the same for you, where you see organizations like agencies like the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ being so villainized. And I haven't ever seen that. And I think that has to be adding to the challenge where you have young people and young talent who are excited going, is this where I want to work? And I, I don't, do you see that that pendulum can shift? 
I sure hope so, yeah. because uh, there are legitimate reasons to raise questions about how agencies function. That has to be part of any administration that wants to do uh, a good job of leading. But this goes way beyond that. This is a vendetta against uh, our intelligence professionals, against our law enforcement and justice uh, professionals. The attack, particularly on the CIA and the FBI, are beyond disturbing. Um, I have had the great privilege of working uh, with both agencies, both as a senator and as secretary of state. I've known a number of the higher ranking officials and even people you know, in the, you know, the middle who are uh, upward and, and uh, professionally committed. And it just defies my expectation of what any leader of our government should be doing. But of course, it's all personal to him. Right. You know, it's all personal because they are part of um, an early warning uh, system, uh, yeah. an <laughs> investigative uh, structure that uh, came across evidence uh, that raised red flags, yeah. which they would have been derelict of duty if they had not pursued. Did you ever think he'd be so much like Nixon? It's so interesting to try to think about that question because, you know, I was on the impeachment staff that investigated uh, Nixon way back when, and uh, Nixon was a much more complex figure right. than Trump. <laughs> uh, he had much more government experience, right. and he had uh, a lot of agenda items that today would be considered liberal, like creating the Environmental Protection mm -hmm. Agency, for example, or one of my favorites, the Legal Services uh, Corporation. But his limited emotional range, um, because he was much more introverted uh, than many people in public life are, and he became quite infected by the you know, paranoia mm -hmm. uh, streak that was present in Republican politics post-World War II. And then when he ran in 68, uh, he adopted uh, the kind of um, strategy that was rooted in racism and mm -hmm. uh, racial fears. And his whole silent majority uh, language was aimed at uh, stirring up the uh, anxieties of uh, white Southerners and others, mm -hmm. just as Lyndon Johnson had predicted when the Civil Rights Act was signed and the Voting Rights Act was signed. So I am, in thinking about Nixon, always disappointed because he had a, a level of uh, understanding and vision right. that was <laughs> operative on the international front too, right. obviously, with China. his China opening. Uh, and he had a, a, an, a level of intelligence that was constantly <laughs> asking for information. Um, so it's a shame that he fell into this uh, self-made uh, paranoia that caused him to order law-breaking and abusing power and, as we recall, uh, which is relevant today, uh, not only obstructing justice but uh, refusing uh, legitimate congressional orders. So the two men are very, very different, right. but they each have ended up abusing 
the power of the office of the president, which is what our founders were most concerned about. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. We were saying in the car, what's, how, what's going on with Don McGahn? Why would somebody say, oh, no, it's just optional. I'm not going to show up. That is, I can't wrap my mind around a time when people would say, no, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to ignore that. We haven't seen that before. We really haven't. And, and you know what's interesting to me, Emily, is uh, how the forces that were behind and leading up to these kinds of decisions that are unprecedented were at work before Trump. Uh, but Trump became such a willing mm. vessel for all the uh, economic uh, religious, ideological, and cultural uh, complaints about uh, modern America and the concerted effort to try to turn the clock back on women's advancement, on integration, on gay rights, on you know, religious freedoms for anybody besides you know, a small group. So I think that there is a uh, very troubling trend here because people who should know better are not stepping into the breach of an Archibald mm -hmm. Cox. Yes, right. You know, they're not saying, no, wait a minute, I pay allegiance to uh, the rule of law, not the rule of men, even if that man is a president. We're not seeing that. And so I have to think that they believe they are furthering this uh, retrograde agenda that is bigger than their own personal reputation and the damage to it. Mm -hmm. And that's frightening to me because, you know, it's one thing to be all for tax cuts that are going to go predominantly to the rich and are really nothing but an example of greediness. Mm -hmm. It's something else to say, we don't really like the way our country has evolved as more and more people have been able to claim their rights, fulfill their own uh, aspirations, become you know, f absolutely uh, front and center in our culture and society and our politics. They really don't want that to be uh, the America that they see. So they're going to continue to stand in the way, uh, to obstruct, and it's a shame because I look at the present attorney general, uh, I was going to just about that. People, people say, oh, he's an excellent lawyer. Well, as far as I'm concerned, he missed a bunch of classes in law school <laughs> uh, because he clearly is not uh, doing what needs to be done to respect the Constitution and the laws of the United States. Are you surprised by what, because I thought he might be okay. Were you surprised at what a partisan hack he turned out to be? No, not once he got nominated and you realize he auditioned for the job by writing a long memo saying that a president cannot obstruct uh, justice. He didn't say that in the 90s. He didn't right. say that before Trump, uh, but he said it to get the job he got. Right. And then his testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee was as full uh, uh, as full a view of his intentions as one could get. I did think he would have some internal restraint, but when he took the Mueller report and deliberately misrepresented it, yeah. I knew he had absolutely no limits. He was going to, for whatever reason, and I don't know whether it's 
his ideology, his religion, his worldview. I don't know what is motivating him, but it is not the law of the United States that he was sworn to uphold. Yeah. Uh, and I think he is one of the more dangerous people uh, in this administration because of his uh, determination to protect uh, his client Trump as opposed to uh, the United States of America. It was You were talking about this administration and there are active measures to really suppress these voices that have come, whether it be women, whether it be minorities. And I think I'm so personally scared and I'm so personally angry at everything that is going on when we're seeing what's going on in Alabama, my home state of Missouri, that every time I turn on the news, I'm like, what are you all doing? What are you thinking? I'm terrified. And I think so many women are terrified about all these, about the bans and all you know, everything we're seeing is there do you we have reason to be scared yes sure you, sure we all do um you know i tried to warn about it in the campaign because even if i believed as i did that trump was hypocritical and saying things he never believed in his life <laughs> and that his past life contradicted i saw him turning himself into a willing tool yeah. Uh, that he was going to play to his base and deliver them the full dose of uh, anger and rage and grievance uh, and you know scapegoating that they apparently were eating up and that he was going to take positions merely to um, obtain and hold power <laughs> as he defined it. So I can't say I'm surprised when he basically telegraphed uh, very loudly that he would put people on the court uh, who would overturn Roe v. Wade. And what McConnell did for him by keeping uh, President Obama's nominee from even getting a hearing uh, was so unprecedented, it just left people you know, gobsmacked. Like, what's going on here? But I think a lot of voters, a lot of <laughs> pundits, a lot of folks just could not believe the evidence in front of their eyes that this was going to create a lot of um, anguish and uh, challenges, uh, not only legally, but socially, culturally, politically. So when you talk about the, uh, the legislation that's being passed in Georgia, in Alabama, in your home state of Missouri, in other places, because I'm sure there's gonna be a, a long list of these states, this is a well-organized, well-funded, motivated minority pushing forward its views despite the majority. That's true on abortion, it's true on gun control, it's true on the environment and climate change. It, you go through the list of how this has become a lobbyist's dream mm -hmm. uh, to be able to take any uh, position, no matter how absurd, no matter how at violation of the law, the facts, the evidence it might be, and basically say, hey, this is what we want, mm -hmm. and to get an affirmative response. Uh, so if you look at the um, assault on uh, abortion rights, uh, it's clear they're shopping for a law that can go to the court yeah. um, so that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch can be part of a majority uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, whether they get there in one bite or they have to take a couple of bites, it's not clear to me. Uh, but we are living in a, 
a fact-free zone. We are living in a world of the big lie being repeated over and over again, as we've seen on all these issues and others. So I, I don't know what it's going to take to convince people that Trump may be a total uh, a hypocrite, uh, but he is supported and, uh, and, and enabled by people who have an agenda that they are doing their level best to get implemented. Do you do you have a, a cabinet member that is the most egregious in your mind? Like mine is Pruitt because he just was like a cola. I mean, you know, but do you have one that where you're just like, this is an example of absolute like Carson? No, because there's so many bad ones. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really find it an embarrassment of riches uh, to think about uh, the people that have been put into these positions. Um, and, you know, it's considered a, a badge of courage to be fired. But remember, a lot of these people were not that great to start with, yeah. and they reached their limit uh, and wouldn't go along with some crazy <laughs> idea, and they got fired, and then they're replaced by even worse people. So it's a, it's a race to the bottom uh, in, in every way. Uh, but probably the worst ones are the ones who are uh, furthering their... Uh, financial interests. Right. They came out of uh, lobbying operations. Uh, they took positions at EPA or Interior, for example, <laughs> and they know where they're going back to. They don't have any definition of the public interest. It's all personal, it, just like you know the uh, the White House. Uh, so, the ones who are true believers or who are just kind of going through the motions, uh, like Ben Carson, who <laughs> didn't want to have the position, doesn't know what it is anymore uh, than he did when he started. Uh, you know, they are pathetic. Right. The other ones are malicious. So yeah. it's kind of a hard choice. <laughs> a smorgasbord. Yeah, a smorgasbord. I wanted just to say, because I would be so remiss if, because this is a little emotional for me to be here. Um, I'm so disappointed, but I'm disappointed that you didn't win, not only for me, but for my nieces, because I wanted them to see that so badly. And obviously after you left, we had Me Too. And I think so many of us got the strength to speak our truth and to speak our stories, because every woman I know has a story. A lot of men were saying, oh, is it this common? And I said, ask any woman and she will tell you her story, then ask her again and she'll tell you her second story and her third story and her fourth story. I have a friend and I wanted just to share it because I, she was going through a horrible Me Too story recently. And I didn't know what to do. I said, what can I do? And I said, I wanted her to be inspired by really, really strong women. So I gave her your book. Oh. oh. And she had the book, and she was texting me. And then she said, can I keep the book longer? I want to read it again. And I said, of course. And she started texting me passages from your book. And I have to tell you, she said that you saved her. And so I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of her. You got her through something that was absolutely horrible. Right now, it's the ship has turned. Her boss was fired. But it was your words, and she said that you saw her. And I just wanted you to know that your impact, your vision, your strength, your courage is still being felt by so, so many women. Well, Emily, please tell your friend. Um, I'm very, very grateful that she found uh, some strength and support uh, because everyone deserves that kind of 
um, backing, and she had a great friend in you uh, in helping her through this. Uh, you know, I wrote that chapter, Women in Politics, because I, I really was so frustrated at the continuing stereotypes and the double standard on steroids that we see uh, in not just politics, but across the board in every walk of life. And, and so there finally has been uh, a, a revelation and a reckoning uh, that I hope really truly changes not only behaviors, but mindsets. And what I worry about are two things. One, a lot of women um, in much more precarious positions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't have uh, the backing, don't have the support, don't have the path forward to speak out for themselves or their coworkers and to get some kind of resolution. And, and probably that remains the majority of women in the workforce um, because those of us and many of those who have stepped forward um, did have some, uh, you know, some support that came from who they were and where they were in life and the position they held. And so if they could get the courage themselves, they could speak out and it would make a difference, not only for themselves, but others. But I, so I think we have to keep looking toward the, you know, the women who are not being seen by anybody still. And the, and the second thing is, uh, I am concerned about some of the reactions that we're now hearing about from particularly the business world, where men are publicly saying, well, I'm never gonna mentor a woman again. Mm. I'm never taking a woman on a business trip. I'm never going, and, and they're missing the whole point, <laughs> you know? But nevertheless, I don't want what should be a moment for everybody to find their voice and for people to think hard about what they're doing and how they're doing it and how it's being perceived to be another obstacle put in the way of young, ambitious women. It's, women aren't gonna go out and make claims of abuse or any, you know, anything like that. Men, I don't understand why men do that. Like it's, it's the pendulum swinging so the opposite way around the moon to the sun to get to that. It makes absolutely no sense. Men saying, I don't wanna travel with a woman. Don't touch her. You'll be fine. Well, you we're know, not going to say anything. I think there. I think we we need to move on to the next level of this discussion, where both men and women are really honest. Because I've had some conversations with some male friends of mine who have said, "I don't know what to do. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's expected." And there there is some uh, reason to. Uh, hear their concerns because this is all really new. It's new to them, and and they say I've never I've never touched a woman. What if I say something wrong? Right. Whatever. Yeah. They don't know what they're supposed to do. So this is a moment for corporate America, political America, academic America, entertainment America, every aspect of our lives together to step forward and say, Hey, look, here is what is expected. You know, no demeaning comments, no <laughs> off-color <laughs> jokes. I mean, things that you know we're kind of just accepted in the past. And so for a lot of men and, and women, there does need to be an effort to say, okay, let, let's not throw all of the opportunities out the door because you don't know how to behave. Let's focus on what to do. I think that would be a, a great service <laughs> to uh, be performed. Um, you've had 
a lot of jobs, right? Mm, yes. I, like, I was thinking about this as a senator, a secretary of state. You know, what, where, what did you feel was you were sort of the best suited for? And do you ever think about going back to the Senate? Oh, because we want you. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, Molly. I, um, you know, I really feel lucky because I've always loved what I was doing at the time I was doing it when I was, you know, a, an advocate. Um, as a you know, as a young lawyer for the Children's Defense Fund, when I was on the impeachment inquiry staff as a young lawyer, when I taught law, when I practiced law, you know, I really always try to live in the present as much as possible, even though that's hard. Um, and I never thought I'd run for public office, so that when I did decide I would run for the Senate, I was terrified, okay. absolutely terrified. And it. And, and it took so much effort for me to learn how to say I instead of he or she or we and to advocate for myself. But I loved being a senator from New York. I adored the job. I loved the state. I felt like we were really getting a lot done. And of course, so much of my eight years in the Senate uh, was taken up with um, the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah. And I made some of the most amazing acquaintances and friends through that work uh, that have so enriched my life. But I also like campaigning, and, and I was, I, I felt very uh, fortunate to be the Secretary of State in the Obama administration first term because I thought we did a lot of good there. So when I look back, <clears throat> excuse me, when I look back, I feel like I was fortunate to serve. I've tried to do a good job, and now I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's the, that, that's the real question. Because you like the Rudy Juliet, you ran against Rudy I for the did. Senate, and you won. I did. Well, he dropped out, but he dropped out when I was already ahead. That's right. I mean, <laughs> you won. And that's why he's so crazed about me, I, I think. I think it might be. And Bill de Blasio worked on your... He ran my campaign. And it was like a great campaign. I mean, it was a terrific campaign. It was such a fun campaign. I mean... Yeah, we that- had so, so much fun. Yeah, you know, I, I really um, look back on that campaign, which uh, I got in, uh, formally got... I made the decision late spring of 99, formally got in in July of 99, made a lot of rookie mistakes. You know, look, I made, I made veteran mistakes too later on, but I made a lot of uh, rookie mistakes... Uh, But running against Giuliani was one of the reasons why New Yorkers, uh, Democratic uh, New Yorkers, recruited me because they were so worried that he would be like a hot knife through butter and there wouldn't be any stopping him because he could raise all this money. And this was before uh, 9-11, but he had a national reputation for being, you know, the tough on crime uh, mayor. So when I got in, it was... uh, tough from the beginning on me because I, I saw, I mean, he, w- he was trying to block me. He would call up people <laughs> who went to an event for me and scream at them for supporting me. I mean, he was full-fledged um, in <laughs> attack mode against me. Uh, and then uh, he had his uh, uh, problems uh, and he dropped out, but I was ahead of him. But then I had to run against a totally new a uh, candidate who was a young, telegenic congressman from Long Island who raised a huge amount of money from uh, Republicans around the country when he got in, and I had to try to, you know, figure out a, a way to, you know, push him back and, and win. So it was a great campaign. Yeah, it was really, really a good one.
Emily, Molly, and I are back in my in my home. We just came back from Hillary Clinton's home, where she spent like close to an hour and a half with us, uh, which was a lot of time. I look forward to hearing the podcast since I was I excused myself into a different room before I was ordered into a different room. But I would love to hear. Uh, I mean, you were both. Hillary supporters and Molly, you've met Hillary before. Emily, you haven't, but obviously this was different. We were sitting in her at her dining room table. We were in her home, and then we talked to her in her kitchen off mic, which was in and of itself <laughs> would have been a great podcast. Um, so, what were your what were your impressions? What were your tell us about it? She's what's interesting about her is that as a woman, I was really affected by her loss, like that moment in history of like. We're going to have a female president. Oh, no. We're going to have a reality television host that no one likes who's racist. And and that moment was like a very important moment in my life because I realized that I had to get involved in politics because like I just had to get involved and in that things that I thought were being taken care of like weren't being taken care of and everything was – I mean, I, it sounds like – I sound arrogant when I say that, but I felt like everyone of us had to get involved. And so – it was interesting to to see her. You know, I had known it had affected her, but it's. It, it, I mean, it obviously affected her in a completely different way than the rest of us. But it was just interesting to connect with her about that moment because it was such a paradigm shift for so many of us. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that obviously it affects her in a different way because it's pretty changing, life changing from her end. But it affects her because it affects you. Like she sees the impact. Yeah. It has on people, especially women, and it kills her. Yeah. You know, she knows this wasn't just a loss to some run-of-the-mill Republican. Right. That would have sucked, but it wouldn't have been, you know, the end of our society. I, I was I was feeling it in my voice, and I was estranged. I, look, um, I'm going to sound like a fanboy, but anyone who's ever seen me with Hillary or known me over the years, I am the first to give her grief over something, um, and I'm pretty irreverent with her, uh, and she gets pretty tired of me, <laughs> which I think <laughs> well, you I guys saw. But, <clears throat> you know, she she's the real deal, and there are not that many presidents walking the earth, and she's one of them, and I've spent a good part of the last 17 years listening to her. Um, listening to her give speeches, give interviews, talk to folks like you. And there's never been a moment that I've listened that haven't thought I'm listening to someone really special who articulates things very sharply, very smartly, very concisely, but with a backdrop of true belief and passion. And uh, it's not starstruck because that went out the window probably year two of working for her but she just she's never unimpressive I felt that it was funny because I thought I was going to be starstruck I live in LA so you see famous people all the time and I you know I know what that's like it was a very very different palpable feeling being with her because you felt her presence you felt her power and every power in the sense that she affects change and she's the real deal. Everything that came out of her mouth, 
and I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect because politicians and you, you know, what, what we're used to hearing now is everything comes out of a politician's mouth is a lie because it's Trump. And to hear her passion about women and her passion about striving for equal rights and what should be done and what hasn't been done, it it was to her core. And I felt like it was radiating out of just every pore of her, her being. I, it was, it was contagious in terms of that passion i just there's this surprise that she's this normal person and i have seen this thousands upon thousands of times the first time i saw it was with myself i did not know her before i was invited to interview for the job i had never met her i was working uh on on the house side of the capitol for congresswoman jane harman of california who um also powerful firebrand um she was good training ground for where i was going and uh they reached out to me and asked me if i wanted to to interview for the job and frankly i thought it was a friend playing a practical joke because i had no relationship with her or the clintons i did not work for her husband i did not work in the white house where was she at that point she was in her first year as senator um and she was losing her press secretary so I was interviewing to be her her press secretary and the night before I went to dinner at Oceana uh, in DC we sat Jeremy and I sat at the bar and I did the old you know pros and cons list and you know the pros was it was Hillary Clinton the cons was I don't really you know I don't I don't really have an expertise in the issues she works on like healthcare, um, the environment and frankly, one of the cons was I only know what I've read about her, and I have to be prepared to, to – it's a cool job, and of course I'm going to take it if I'm offered, but i got to be prepared that I'm working for someone that I've read a lot about and heard a lot about and might be tough. And I went over to uh, – they, 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 they told me the night before I walked from the House to the Senate which sounds like a short distance. Yeah. That, so the Capitol, I mean, if you ever look at a picture of the Capitol, you're looking at the dome, you know, the Senate is on the left, the House is on the right, but the office buildings where people actually work are even further out. So it must have been, I don't know, third of a mile, a quarter of a mile in July. Oh, and, and I was like not wearing suits. an all season suit. <laughs> I get to her and office. Philippe is a sweater. I, I got to her office and it's pretty hot. And I was in her outer office, and she, the door to her inner office opened, and she bounded out, and she extended her hand, and she said, Hi, Philippe, I'm Hillary Clinton. And in that moment, it occurred to me that everything I thought was wrong. It was, first of all, she came to me. She came out of her office. She knew how to pronounce my name, which is, sounds silly, but it means she took a, a time to ask someone, um, we went into her office, and we spoke for probably 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Could not believe how at ease she was. I mean, I, the experience that I had meeting her the first time is the experience you had talking to her the first time. And I've seen this, I can't even count how many times. The two biggest things people say when they emerge from a meeting with her is, she's just nothing like I thought she was. And the second thing is she's so much more beautiful than I thought, yeah. which Hillary always finds funny because she says, you, 
does anyone realize that's not a compliment? It's, it's <laughs> the worst. <thing. laughs> yeah. It's meant as a compliment, but you know, you're saying you didn't think. But I've never seen someone come out of a meeting with her and thought, well, that was lame. Uh, she's just not that personable. She's not, she really connects. She knows. So it was, it's interesting listening to you two because you're fans. It's, you know, you guys have never spent that kind of time with her in our conversation. And a lot of it surprised you. A lot of it just how down to earth, how normal. She, you know, you're describing her as not scripted. She was candid. And, you know, it's always frustrated us because people always say, if only we could see the real you, or why couldn't she show that side of her in the campaign? And it, it's not that we hit it. <laughs> it's that there's something that's tough to do in a larger setting that is different when you're in a room with her. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unredacted. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Hillary Clinton and then our conversation among ourselves about Hillary Clinton. And hope that you will tune in in a couple of days when we release the second half of our interview with Hillary. Thank you for listening to Unredacted.